0: you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 20, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 20 in the Gospel of John. John writes, Early in the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself. Separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken away my Lord, she said, and I don't know where they have put Him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, "'Why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for?' Thinking he was a, the gardener, she said, "'Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him.' Jesus said to her, "'Mary.' She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, "'Rabboni,' which means teacher. Jesus said, "'Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father.' Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Let us pray. Lord, we do thank you for this eternal text, which Job prayed for and you fulfilled. Lord, we ask that it would stir our hearts afresh, that it would break any callous ground, that sinners might be converted and saints be transformed, so that we might grow into true worshipers of you, those who worship you in spirit and truth. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. When I was a little boy, as I think I may have told you in the past, I had an apple tree in our front yard. And every year, this tree had a bumper crop, and the reason we did was my dad just pruned the fire out of that tree. Uh, He whittled it down to almost nothing, and as a result, he left all the good fruit-bearing branches present. And so we had tons of apples, and so those apples would be laying all over the ground, and oftentimes, as boys do, we would go outside and try to figure out some game we could do with all these apples on the ground. Now, boys will be boys, and... We probably did some things we shouldn't. But one of the games we played was a game where you twist the stem off. Perhaps you've played this game. You twist it and you go A, B, C, D. And whatever the letter was that you ended on, you thought of what your future wife's name might be. That was our game. No comment on that. But uh, we, we would probably do about 10 or 15 apples, so you know we had all kinds of names, and the goal was sometimes to see who could make it the farthest. But to this day, the name Amber will always be special to me, because it sums up more than just a name. It sums up a relationship, a person, a person who I'm in love with, person who I've committed that I will be with to the rest of my life. It also means a lot to me when she says, "My name." There's intimacy there. There's a depth of relationship. And that is the beauty of a name. A name means something. And today, we're going to look at an intimate relationship Jesus had with one Mary. One who He knew her name, and she knew His. Well, with the accounts of the resurrection, God has been very complete And making sure we have a very detailed account so that there are no doubts of this resurrection. And so we, His church, might know the truth of it. And to help us understand this, John provides a very great account on Mary's visit to the tomb. Now we know from the other Gospels that Mary was not alone. In fact, she went with a couple other women. The other Gospels tell us Mary, the mother of Jesus, Joanna, and Salome were all present. And this group of women moved towards the tomb to take care of the burial needs, to reanoint Jesus' body. Now one might ask the question, why does John omit this? Well, if you know your church history or your history of the different books of the Bible, the Gospel of John was written at a later date than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And one of the things John does in his gospel often is he assumes that you and I have read other stuff, so he doesn't go in as much detail, and he wants to focus our attention in different places. And today, he wants to focus, I want to focus our attention on Mary. You see, when Mary arrives, something has happened, hasn't it? A large 2,000 pound rock has been moved. Now, that doesn't happen every day in Jerusalem. If you asked any Jew, that was quite odd. And it greatly disturbed her. It made her cause to wonder what was going on. You might ask, why did that disturb her? Well, this person she was coming to see Jesus was no ordinary person in her life. If you know something about Mary's life, as you read the Gospel, we're told that Jesus Himself had delivered her, had cast out seven evil spirits that had made their abode in Mary's soul. She was a demon-possessed woman. Now, we don't know exactly what details that demonic activity entailed or what sins accompanied that, but I think it's very easy for us to say that Mary was a sinner And the demons were quite active in her life. Now some have argued that she was a woman of ill repute, a a prostitute. We don't know that. It could have been. But there's no evidence to show that. But what is true is the Lord had done an amazing work in Mary's life. And ever since that time, Mary loved Jesus since that point in time in the scriptures, we are told that Mary went along. In Luke chapter 8, she and a number of other women helped to financially support Jesus' ministry. She was there all along the way as Jesus journeyed to Jerusalem. It was her goal to hear the teacher teach and to watch him do his work. Mary was not, like the Da Vinci Code asserts, Christ's lover. There is no, absolutely no evidence of that in the scripture. She was just a devoted woman that loved Jesus. So when she arrived, she noticed the stone had been moved. And obviously, we know the stone had been moved for a reason. It had not been moved so Jesus could get out. Rather, I dare say it had been moved so that Mary and the disciples could get in. So Mary was overwhelmed. She had just experienced the darkest days of her life. She had seen her heart crushed as she watched Jesus be crucified. Remember, she was one of the women who, who were near the cross. When all the disciples fled, she stood there because she loved Jesus. And now she sees this 2,000 pound rock moved. In her quick assessment, she rationalized someone has stolen the body, someone has taken her Lord. And what does she do? She goes to the leaders of the twelve, Peter and John, and she runs there. Upon hearing Mary's testimony, Peter and John don't waste time either, do they? They race into action. And what's interesting, for some reason, John makes a little snippet that he got there first before Peter did. I have no idea why that was so crucial, but he tells us that. Maybe they had been racing buddies, I don't know. But for some reason, he makes that note. And he arrives first. And I think it's possibly because he wants to highlight this second section, because it sort of shows the difference that we see of John and Peter throughout the Gospels. You see, John is sort of reflective. We see this in his writings. There's much thought and depth of thinking. Peter has always been the leader that crashes the party. He's the one who steps out there. And so when John gets there, he's hesitant to go in. And from his vantage point, John tells us about himself how he saw the strips of linen lying there. It's almost like he's apprehensive to go in there. But Peter just barges in. He goes right into the tomb. And the phrase is repeated again. Did you catch that? John repeats it twice for a reason. He says, he saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the burial cloth that was around Jesus' head. Now John is telling the, that this is not what they expected to see. Here was the cloth and it was all folded up neatly. And its cloth was separate from the, from the linen. Now two things we should focus our attention on uh, that the disciples saw. First, Luke is, or John is emphasizing that the bandages that are lying there are not torn or rimmed. They're, they're folded. They're neat. It's not like someone came out of them. And second, they're wrapped in a formation and the body of Christ is absent. So a couple questions must have came to their mind. If robbers had stolen the body, why did they leave the bandages? And secondly, if they did steal the body, why would they leave the bandages so neatly wrapped up in such a formation? Now at this point, we must notice the verb tenses that John tells us about himself. Look at verse 5. John bent over, and notice it says, he looked in. It's almost like he's inquisitive, right? He's checking things out. It's like a glance or a quick look. Verse 6, Simon Peter went into the tombs and he saw the strips of linen lying there. The verb changes to note a deeper viewing. In the Greek, it's the idea of to perceive with understanding. In other words, he's getting his head around what's going on here. And then verse 8, notice what it says about John. Who reached the tomb first? He went inside. It says, he saw and believed. John tells us it was at this point in his life that he believed Jesus had risen from the grave. He, tells a, he gives us a little side note there. He says, You know, I didn't quite understand all the Old Testament prophecies, but I got my head around that Jesus had really risen. He really was alive. And John's heart lifts. It's almost you can see like joy enters in to John. God has now given him an eyewitness account so that you and I might believe. But notice something else happens here. You see, uh, John is Jewish. And John knows God's law. And one of the things that we're told about God's law in Jewish law is two men must be present to confirm a fact in a legal case. Two men must be present to say, This is true. We both saw it. And I think it's in this way of God working through the providence of life that Mary that day comes to Peter and John. And of all disciples, she comes to them. And those two come. And I think this is God's way of testifying to us that He will fulfill His law and He will very much verify the truth that Jesus rose from the ga- grave. Now, Peter, on the other hand, was not to the point of comprehension John was, was he? He's sort of trying to get his head around it. And in verse 12, we're told that Peter went away wondering what happened. It's almost a perplexing thought. He, he, he can't quite get it at this point. But make no mistake, the seed of faith is there. And it's going to grow in time. Well, after these experiences at the tomb, the disciples return to their homes, one in great joy and the other still trying to get his arms around the events he just witnessed. But now, the disciple that Jesus loves, he wants all of us to focus in on one person, doesn't he? Mary. He spends significant time now on Mary and on her experience at the tomb. You know, as we read, it's quite obvious this woman was overwhelmed with grief. She was overwhelmed. I can't imagine what she went through at those days. I have not had an experience where, where great grief happened in my life. Some of you may have had where you were just in total shock or overwhelmed. And it's like a, a ripple effect that continues to last in your life for some time. And obviously that was true for Mary. So she goes in a second time, and what does she see this time? She sees two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been. Now John also goes into great detail here, doesn't he? Notice the posture. Where were they sitting? Did you catch that? One was sitting at the head, and the other was sitting at the foot. There's only one other place in Scripture where that same image is found one angel at the head, and one angel at the foot. Exodus 25, verse 17 through 19 says this, You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, and you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work you shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. If you remember your Old Testament... There was an Ark of the Covenant, and on that were the two angels, the cherubim, and their wings touched one another. And it was there on that mercy seat that every year the high priest would go in and offer the blood of goats and bulls for the sins of the nation. Those were the two angels that were on equal sides. And it was between these two angels that God's wrath was to be appeased. This is John's way of saying to us, Do you see, brothers and sisters... This is the mercy seat. And this who is the mercy seat is Jesus. Mercy seat has been translated in the Greek testament I mean from the Old Testament to the Greek testament New Testament as the word propitiation. Romans 3:25 reads, God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because of divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. You see, a propitiation was a sacrifice to appease just wrath that was due against that person by another. And here at the grave, we see the propitiation. We see Jesus' body. We see the meteor. We see the God-man, right? The one who stood in between for you and I. And now He's missing because He has taken the wrath. Now Mary at this point doesn't quite comprehend all this, but John is doing this for us to help our faith, isn't he? Remember that's why this Gospel was written? So that you and I might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing in Him you might have life in His name. John is again providing all of us evidence that this is the one whom our heart is to hope. So two questions are then asked Mary, right? The angels ask, woman, why are you crying? Whenever a question is asked by God or the angels, they usually know the answer, don't they? And usually when a question is asked, its goal is not so much for them to be informed as it is a way of informing that person or ourselves, of a eternal truth. She says to the angels, They have taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they have put Him. Notice all that Mary wanted. All she wants is to be near Jesus. Isn't that a sweet thought? All she wanted was to be near Jesus. And notice, she calls Him, My Lord. Brothers and sisters, please notice, her love never diminished because of her position of superiority over her. Sometimes we can think that love can diminish if someone is superior than us. No, it does not. Her love is true and it is abundant. And right now, John is painting before us what a true picture of devotion to Jesus should look like. So even after seeing these two angels, Mary continues to weep over missing her Lord. And then it's like someone walks in behind her. She notices the presence of another person. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. And he asks her the same question. Woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? Now again, God knows the answer. Jesus knows the answer. But He's trying to awaken Mary out of all the emotion that she is feeling to the truth that He has risen, and she still doesn't get it. She says, "'Sir, if you have carried Him away, tell me where you have put Him, and I will get Him.'" Notice the intimacy. She talks to that person as if that person should know who she's talking about. She doesn't say, "'Where's Jesus?' Or where is the teacher? Or where is the Rabboni? She says, Where is him? There is a depth of intimacy here going on. And what does he say in response? He just says her name. He just says Mary. And when Mary hears her name, she knows it is who, I'm sorry, she knows who is speaking to her. She knows it's Jesus, and immediately she says, Rabboni, teacher. Now earlier in this sermon, I talked to you about the specialness of a name. For those of you married, you know what I'm talking about. Or those of you who have children, or children, you know the voice of your parent. Anybody else can say your name, but when you hear their voice or their uniqueness, you know who it is, and immediately Mary responds, This was her Lord, her God, her teacher, and her friend. And now He was in her arms, before her eyes, and He was alive. Something that stands out is how Jesus reveals Himself. He calls her by name. In John chapter 10, verse 3 and 4, Jesus says this, He who enters the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens The sheep hear His voice, and He calls His own sheep by name and leads them out. And when He has brought out all of His own, He goes before them, and the sheep follow Him, for they know His voice. Brothers and sisters, make sure before you even leave here today that you know His voice. Not that you know who He is, but you're like Mary. You know His voice. Because He wants you to know His voice, does He not? He wants you to know His love, His care, and the price that He paid for you on the cross. You see, Mary knew Jesus because Jesus knew Mary. Well, how does Christ know you? How does He know your name? Well, the Bible tells us that we go by another name before we know Jesus, don't we? Or a couple of them. We're called children of wrath, sons of disobedience. That's our name because we're sinners. We don't love God, nor do we desire our way. But when we place our faith in Christ, when we say, Lord Jesus, come into my soul and save me from my sins, He transforms our name. I'm no longer Doug, what I used to be. I'm now Doug the Christian. Some of you all can relate to that. You relate to your former manner of life. There's been a transformation. Your name means something different now, doesn't it? That is the good news of the Gospel. I read earlier today about Job and his testimony, how he was so excited about his Redeemer, the one who transformed his name. And he wrote, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see Him with my own eyes, I and not another, and how my heart yearns within me. You see, Job wanted to see God and to be known by Him. And that is the same true for Mary. Job had set his heart that one day this Redeemer would come. And he said, how my heart yearns within me. And his Savior did come. He came in Jesus. That was Mary's testimony too. Her love consumed her, didn't it? She was overwhelmed with Jesus because in Jesus, His love had saved her. His love had saved her from the demons that once inhabited her. His love had saved her all of the, from all the errors she had once believed and all the false truths she had put her hope in. He had saved her from her greatest problem, which was yours and mine. He saved her from her sin by paying the debt. And it's because He loved her that she loved Him. And how great was her love. Earlier in the Gospels, Jesus taught this principle. He who is forgiven little, loves little. But he who is forgiven much, loves much. I think Mary loved Jesus so much. And why she gets uh, the par excellence, she is esteemed as all as the model of devotion to Jesus. She is the first one to see the risen Lord. What a claim to fame. That God would say out of all the people in the whole wide world, I want you to... You who I cast out seven demons to be the first to see me. I believe part of that reason is because Jesus, I mean, sorry, Mary loved Jesus much because she knew how much Jesus had done for her, how much he had forgiven her of. And brothers and sisters, if we are going to be like Mary, we've got to see how much our dear Lord Jesus paid for us. The more you and I comprehend how deep a sinner we are, the greatness we see of Jesus' love. And when we see Jesus' love, it transforms us, doesn't it? We want to love others. We want to tell others about Jesus. We get excited about Jesus. And that's after Mary was clinging to Jesus and holding on to Him. What does Jesus say? Mary, here's how you can express your love. Here's how you can share your love with so many people about me to others. He says, tell your brothers that I'm returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And so what does Mary do? She makes a beeline for the disciples because she wants those who knew Jesus the best to make sure they know the real truth about Jesus. And what does she say? I have seen the Lord. I have seen the Lord. I have seen the Lord. That is the true expression of love. She cannot contain it. And that's what happens to you and I when we realize how much Christ has forgiven us. We have to tell others about Jesus. We have to say, I have seen the Lord. We cannot contain it. It's too great of love. The walls of our heart cannot control it. Oh, brother and sister, do you see that love? That is the amount the of redemption God has done for us. And that happens over time. There are moments in our life when we go through life where we don't see the greatness of His love. We can grow hard and callous. Maybe like the day we saw it when Christ first came into our life. But God in His infant mercy give us moments like Mary where we see the greatness of His love. And whether it's not today, I would pray that it would be someday soon. Because it's when we see the greatness of God's forgiveness in our life, it moves our hearts to love, does it not? And that's the beauty of the church. Broken, sinful people who have now been redeemed go out and love people. And that's where the great works of the church have happened in the past. Where slavery was done away with. Where people taught the law of God and the truth of it. And lives were transformed. And that is my prayer for you and me. That God's love, as it transformed Mary, would transform us. And we would want to love others more. That is what Easter Sunday represents. It's the hope of the resurrection, the hope of eternal life, the blessedness of God's love on wayward sinners. And so as a result, we as now redeemed sinners can go out and tell and announce His love. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank You for Mary's testimony. And I pray it's today, but if it's not today, I pray for each of us. Oh Lord, help us to see our sin so that we might see the magnitude of your grace. Thank you for your gospel, that each day we preach it to ourselves, we're reminded we're no better than anybody else. We simply need Jesus. And when we have Jesus, we have all things. We have the Lord, and that is good. Help that to be true in our lives, and we ask that in Christ's name. Amen.